Tonight on The Readout. While the march began as a response to Roe, we don't end as a response to Roe being overturned. Why? Because we're not yet done. They are not done. On the 50th anniversary of Roe, anti-abortion forces are actively working to further crush the reproductive rights of women, regardless of how unpopular it is with the American people. Also tonight, why Kevin McCarthy might be mumbling, I made a huge mistake after striking down proxy voting in the House. And while there's nothing at all wrong with performing in drag, actually, it's quite fabulous, the hypocrisy of alleged drag queen George Santos helping to push the rights, anti-LG, the, the rights anti-LGBTQ agenda is a very big problem. But we begin tonight with the results of, or actually lack of results, from the eight-month internal investigation of the Supreme Court over the leaked draft of the decision that rolled back 50 years of precedent, overturning Roe v. Wade and the constitutional right for women to have autonomy over their own bodies. The court claims it performed a diligent search, following up on all leads, but just can't conclusively identify the leaker. Curious enough, the report indicated that the justices themselves were not scrutinized as part of the probe. In a new statement tonight, the Supreme Court marshal clarified that he did speak with all nine justices during the probe, but unlike all the other court employees he spoke with, he did not believe that it was necessary to ask the justices to sign sworn affidavits. Well, that seems convenient, especially if you recall the New York Times report from last November, where a former anti-abortion leader within the Christian right accused Justice Samuel Alito of leaking the verdict in the 2014 Burwell versus Hobby Lobby case to religious activists. You know, the one that gave companies the right to deny birth control coverage to their employees. The Reverend Bob Shank told the Times he used that information to prepare a public relations push to allow them to get ahead of the backlash from the decision. And as you may recall, it is Justice Alito who also wrote the decision overturning Roe. Hmm. Interesting. So when it comes to the Dobbs leak, you have to ask yourself the question, who benefited? Who benefited the most from it being out there? And the answer is simple. It is these right-wing religious groups that have spent decades trying to ban abortion. So they too could prepare for the inevitable backlash. Make no mistake, getting rid of Roe was not the end goal for these groups, but just the start of their crusade to control women. While Sunday marks the 50th anniversary of the enactment of the Roe decision, anti-abortion activists were in Washington today for their annual March for Life rally. And they have made clear where they want to take this American Talibanism next. We're already seeing their efforts to try to restrict access to abortion pills by going after pharmacies and providers. They now have a case before a Trump-appointed judge in Texas that could revoke the FDA's approval of a component of the abortion pill. If this judge grants the request for an injunction, it would stop the distribution of the abortion pill nationwide, even in blue states that have strong abortion protections. Now, while that decision could get overturned in an appeal, that could take months and it could ultimately wind up at the Supreme Court, the same Supreme Court that allowed the Texas law, which effectively banned abortion in that state at six weeks to stand. And of course, the one that overturned Roe. And if that wasn't bad enough, there are now some efforts to possibly prosecute women for getting an abortion. Alabama's attorney general said last week that anyone who uses pills to induce an abortion can still face consequences under the state's chemical endangerment of a child statute, which is a law that was made to protect children from the risks of at-home meth labs. He has since walked back those comments. But a bill introduced in Oklahoma Senate last week 
would amend the state's abortion restrictions, eliminating language that clarifies that being pregnant offers protection from prosecution, which would serve women up for felony charges for inducing an abortion. A similar bill was also just introduced in Arkansas, which would allow prosecution for obtaining an abortion under state homicide laws. Now, like I said, Roe was just the start. Joining me now is Alexis McGill Johnson, president of Planned Parenthood. And thank you so much for being here. It seems to me, um, Alexis, that the right didn't like the political result and the political backlash from overturning Roe because the Republicans didn't really want to talk about it immediately afterward. They wanted to talk about crime and inflation and other things. And they still paid a huge price electorally for what they for what they what they put in place at the Supreme Court that did that. But now they're getting aggressive. Let me let me read a little bit of this Rolling Stone um, article. This is the judge who's seeing, who's hearing the case about trying to ban the abortion pill. Matt, Matt, his name is Matthew Kesmarek. Matthew Kesmarek was nominated by Donald Trump and confirmed by a slim majority of Republican senators back in 2019. Despite alarms raised about his writing, he once argued against not just same-sex marriage and no-fault divorce, but also birth control, abortion, and sex outside of marriage. Advocates don't think it's a coincidence that this lawsuit landed in Kazmarek's docket. Several told Rolling Stone they believe the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, the group bringing the suit, was created for the express purpose of filing in Amarillo, Texas, in order to draw a judge whose record shows he's clearly opposed to reproductive rights. How worried should we be that the right will achieve, in essence, a national abortion ban by banning the, the, the means by which I think more than half of women get abortions? Yes, absolutely. Well, Joy, first of all, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for having us here. Look, I mean, what did Dr. Maya Angelou say? When people show you who they are, believe them. And at every turn, they have demonstrated who they are. They want to come. They want to have a nationwide abortion ban. They're going to continue to do that. The way they're going to do that is to essentially use this court, this Kazmarek court, not only to turn over um, access to abortion via Mifepristone, they're also, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, Joy, all this talking is on me. Get some water. <laughs> it's been a long week of talking. Live TV, everybody, uh, live TV. Get some water, sister. <laughs> I, apologize. I apologize for that. Look, they're no. coming after Mifepristone. The same court, Judge Kaczmarek has a case before it to defund Planned Parenthood in Texas on some baseless claims. They have also the the, uh, the court that has taken up this Title 10 case in relationship to minors getting access to birth control. So at every turn, they are trying to literally trying to defund access to health care across the board. So we should believe them. That is exactly what they are trying to do. Right. I mean, they're very clear. I mean, these are people who, again, are against birth control pills. They think those are abortifacients. They're in, in, in his case, they're against uh, sex outside of marriage. I think that should, I guess, be criminalized as well. And they're against no fault divorce. I mean, this is the reason I refer to it as American Talibanism is that it is about having complete control by the state over women. And they can't and they lie that the, the lie that they put out there is that, no, 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 we just want it to be decided in the states. But when it is decided in the states and it's decided in favor of women's liberty, they try to undercut that too. Dateline Kansas, which passed this surprise but overwhelming support for women to have rights over their own bodies in the state of Kansas. That referendum passed overwhelmingly, and yet Kansas lawmakers, since they can't ban abortions, 
have now introduced a bill that would allow cities and counties to ban abortion despite the referendum. So what they're doing is they're saying, no, 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 let the states decide. But they're saying, no, 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 let the white Christian men decide. No, completely. And I look, I like my message has been consistently since uh, since Dobbs was overturned, because I think people saw that Dobbs decision is like, oh, well, now abortion is banned. They didn't understand that. Actually, no, the Supreme Court doesn't get the final word. We do. The Dobbs decision didn't ban abortion. It returned the decision to the states. And in every state, there's a pro-reproductive rights majority. In every state, we know that bans are deeply unpopular. They don't want to see these politicians legislate their freedom to control their own bodies. Every poll that has been released since that, that court decision has said that the majority of people oppose the Dobbs decision, and yet they still haven't learned the lesson that, in fact, this is not where people want to go. And so we're going to have to continue. I mean, you know, the, the argument that uh, abortion and democracy were so closely linked in the election is something that I think we continue to have to depend on to, to make sure that people understand this is actually democracy in action. It is, it is making sure that people understand that the very people that they put in office, all of these lawmakers, these judges who become judges as a function of these lawmakers, uh, state attorneys general, governors, like they all have a, a role to play in whether or not you have access to freedom in your own state. And so we know this is this is going to be another, you know, 20, 30 year fight. Um, but but what I hope is becoming clear to people is that we actually have the agency. We have proven time and again, particularly over the last election, that we actually have the power and the history and the right on our side. And that's where yeah. I, I just want to on this anniversary really put, point people's attention. Well, I mean, the thing is that people, though, have to vote for that because people are just sort of being like, I'm on team Republicans, so I vote for Republicans. And then you get things like this uh, in the state of uh, Montana. Uh, the conservative leaders have sought, sought to tighten the state's Medicaid rules to make it more difficult for low-income people to receive abortions by changing the definition of when it's medically necessary. Um, the opposite is happening in Georgia, where I think the, the electorate has made it very clear they don't want Georgia to be a Florida or a Montana or a Texas. The speaker there has said, eh, we don't want to look for anything new right now. But the, but the consequences of what they're doing in these super red states— According to the Gender Equity Policy Institute, mothers in states with abortion bans are nearly three more likely to die during pregnancy, childbirth, or soon after giving birth. Restricted abortion access has been linked to an increase in suicide in young women. And these lawmakers don't care about that. They don't care about maternal death. They don't care about uh, women becoming ill or even trying to kill themselves. They simply want control over them. And I don't know how else to say that. Well, there's no other way to say it. It is about power and control. And I think it always has been. And I think that this is part of what we have to continue to demonstrate over these next through this state legislative session and into 24, where they have made clear that they want a nationwide ban. And we are already seeing the impacts, not just of the Dobbs decision, but a year before the Dobbs decision, SB8. The impact that it's having on thing, on miscarriage management, on you know all of the other kind of sexual and reproductive health care that is under attack, and I think we have to continue to tell this story of 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 that this isn't just about abortion. This isn't just about kind of saving women's lives because clearly they are not focused on that. They're not they're not even getting Medicaid. Uh, you know, um, under under ACA, they're leaving billions of dollars on the table in each of yep. their states in order to, you know, to deny people access to care. I mean, they're literally yeah. banning bare arms in Missouri because yes. because of I mean, I have no idea. 
I mean, like, this is what we're talking about. And I really do think that, um, you know, on the anniversary of Roe, I think, you know, and we all know Roe was already the floor, that we have to continue to have imagination that is bigger than Congress, that is bigger than yeah. this movement, you know, that is bigger than, than, than what the opposition is trying to tell us, because they really do not understand how our bodies work and why it is so important for us to make control of them. Indeed. Well, Alexis, you know, as you know, women's bare arms are an incredible temptation to the men who cannot resist, uh, you know, acting upon their love, their, 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 their impulses. If they see that bare arms, you know that that's just a part of it. So it's why I call them the Taliban. Uh, Alexis McGill Johnson, thank you very much for being here. Uh, up next on the readout, judges are officially done. They're done with Trump's life, lifelong abuse of the legal system. The readout continues after this. So what we'll do, I guess we'll sue them. Let's sue them. All of these liars will be sued after the election is over. I actually told my lawyers, I said, sue him anyway. He's got immunity, but they can't mean immunity for that. I said, sue him anyway, even if we lose, the American public will understand. If there's one thing we know to be true about Donald Trump, it's that he loves to sue. Over the course of his career, Trump has been involved in an astronomical amount of lawsuits. USA Today counted 4,095, and that was before he was elected president. They ranged from suits against the network Univision for saying it would not air Trump's Miss Universe pageants after his comments about Mexicans being rapists, to suing his ex-wife Ivana for talking too much about details related to his finances. He even sued the country of Scotland for building an offshore wind farm next to one of his hotels. True story. But today, Donald Trump's weird obsession with lawsuits finally backfired. The former president was hit with a fine of almost $1 million for a lawsuit he filed against Hillary Clinton, alleging that she, along with the Democratic National Committee, orchestrated a malicious conspiracy to investigate his campaign's ties to Russia and rigging the election in Clinton's favor, even though he literally won that election. It's safe to assume Trump was hoping for Southern District of Florida Judge Eileen Cannon to oversee the case, given her track record with the classified documents investigation. But instead, he got Judge Donald Middlebrook, who, let's just say, did not hold back. Writing in a searing 46-page judgment last night, Mr. Trump is a prolific and sophisticated litigant who is repeatedly using the courts to seek revenge on political adversaries. He is the mastermind of strategic abuse of the judicial process, and he cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. He knew full well the impact of his actions. Well, Trump must have gotten the message loud and clear because this morning he dropped another lawsuit he filed in Florida before the same judge against New York Attorney General Letitia James. Joining me now is David K. Johnston, founder of DCReport.org and author of The Big Cheat, and Tristan Snell, former New York Assistant Attorney General and lead investigator in the Trump University probe. David K. Johnston, you've been covering Trump for a long time. Is this the first intelligent legal thing he's ever done, backing away from the New York lawsuit? <laughs> uh, I don't recall anything like this before, and I'm actually surprised it's taken judges this long because Donald makes frivolous arguments. And one of the things I tell my law students at Syracuse University is, if a judge calls your argument frivolous, he is effectively or she is effectively saying, you're a drunk in a bar. <laughs> he kind of, that kind of, 
stands it accurate. Tristan Snell, this is what Judge Middlebrook, Middlebrook did going after Donald Trump for actually using his lawsuits as a way to raise money. Frivolous lawsuits should not be used as a vehicle for fundraising or fodder for rallies or social media. Mr. Trump is using the courts as a stage set for political theater and grievance. This behavior interferes with the ability of the judiciary to form its constitutional duty. You know, the courts are something that one thinks we should take seriously, but Trump has never taken them seriously. He's, you know, brushed off subpoenas. He's used, as the judge said, lawsuits as theater um, and as ways to get himself attention. Um, is this tactic finally kind of running out of gas for him? And if that is the case, could it trickle down to the people who've mimicked him in his camp? You know, this could be a way for us to finally get Donald Trump to pay his fair share in taxes. Uh, he's paying more in court fines than he's ever paid in taxes anytime recently. Uh, so, you know, maybe this will have some salutary impact. Uh, I think he's going to keep doing it as long as he can raise money off of it. And as long as the money he's raising, uh, you know, outstrips the amount that he's getting fined, he's going to be turning a profit in his head. Uh, I think they're going to need to sanction him more because it is ridiculous. This is a waste of judicial, judicial resources, and the courts are not a place for him to p- pursue his political vendettas, plain and simple. Well, and also his lawyers, by and large, have humiliated themselves and made a mockery of the court system. These people are all now considered legal jokes if they still even have the right to practice. But, you know, just to go through some of the old uh, Trump lawsuits, David K. Johnson, he sued Bill Maher in 2013 for joking on The Tonight Show that he'd give Trump five million dollars if he could um, prove to his prove that his father was not an orangutan. He, in 1984, he sued the Chicago Tribune for a column suggesting the Sears Tower in Chicago would remain the world's tallest building besides Trump's plan to build a taller structure. He sued Palm Beach, Florida in 2006 after he was citing, cited for violating zoning codes for flying this giant American flag. I could go on and on and on. Um, he sued the Eastern Pequot uh, tribe in 2003, a Native American tribe of less than a thousand people in Connecticut, claiming he spent $10 million helping to promote the tribe's land in exchange for the right to negotiate the casino agreement. Like, I mean, you can just go through it and they get more and more ridiculous. Has he ever won any of these crazy suits? Um, the crazy ones, I don't think so. He has uh, lost some very clear ones, the one against my former New York Times colleague, Tim O'Brien, over the size of his fortune, which is nowhere near what Donald claims. Um, and uh, he's had others he dropped or walked away from because it was clear he was going to use them. But understand, Donald uses this strategically. Uh, the last time he and I spoke, he called me at home in, uh, during the election, uh, the 2016 election, and said, uh, wouldn't answer my questions about the extraordinary favors he did for a major international cocaine trafficker he'd been doing business with for years. And he said, you know, I'm going to sue you. And I said, well, Donald, if you have a case, bring your case. Uh, I don't, do you have a case? And he says, it doesn't matter. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to ruin you. And that's what it does to people. He, he does it. And a lot of people back off because of this. Yeah been an effective strategy to shield him. And a lot of news organizations have been very tempered in what they reported because of his litigation threats. Yep. Uh, You know who's not tempered? Uh, Jack Smith, because he really doesn't care. Uh, The one person I think, Tristan, that he probably does fear and should fear is this guy, Jack Smith, because Jack Smith has no incentive to be intimidated. It doesn't seem like the type. Uh, Here, Trump is freaking out about the special counsel who is investigating him, both for the documents that he stole and had at Mar-a-Lago and potentially for fomenting an insurrection. Here's Trump. Yet while I'm being persecuted by 
Trump-hating special counsel, I call them special prosecutors, but this one in particular is a prosecutor and a Trump-deranged person. They prosecute all sorts of things. He prosecuted war crimes and war criminals. Joe Biden, in the meantime, is being given white glove treatment by a establishment hack who tried to cover up the Russia hoax. He actually tried to cover it up. Sure, if you can smell fear through the TV. <laughs> but Tristan, do you detect that he might actually be afraid and does he have reason to be? You know, the more he lashes out, the more he is afraid. So you can tell who he's afraid of by who he spends time paying attention to. These people are all living rent-free in his head. Uh, you know, uh, that's basically where Jack Smith is now. He's taken up the penthouse in Trump's head. Uh, there's lots of room in there. It's pretty empty. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, he's clearly afraid of Smith. He should be. Uh, Smith keeps on loading up uh, his uh, force with a lot of other senior prosecutors, including folks who have experience prosecuting politicians. Uh, and there's been a whole secret war going on that very few people have really spent that much time talking about, where if you go to the federal courthouse in D.C. any given weekday, you might bump into a Trump lawyer or a senior DOJ lawyer, and they're there for these closed-door proceedings uh, regarding grand jury testimony, uh, subpoenas, et cetera, et cetera. And by all accounts, Trump is losing all of these battles. Mm. He knows exactly what's coming, and we can tell Hell, he's freaking out about it by what he posts. Yeah. And David, you've been covering this guy for a long time. Um, do you agree with my assessment that running for president was the dumbest thing he ever did? Because a lot of his lies are being exposed, as you said, the, the dealing with mob bosses, the not paying taxes. It's all being uncovered, whether or not he winds up in jail. He's been completely stripped and exposed. The veneer is gone. Yeah, I don't believe that the law enforcement would have ever focused on Donald if he hadn't run for president. He just gotten away with so much stuff. And he was very good student of uh, his second father, the notorious Roy Cohn. But once you run for president and do the things he did, of course, law enforcement's going to be after you. And he goes, well, this isn't fair. Well, you know, if you drive across the country and rob gas stations in four states and then four states prosecute you, guess what? You caused that problem. Yeah. Pretty much. And that describes his presidency, in my mind, uh, the last, over the four years that he was in the White House. David K. Johnson and Tristan Snell, thank you both very much. Still ahead, Kevin McCarthy may have finally gotten his, his precious gavel, but his headaches are not over. His biggest migrant, of course, in the form of serial fabricator George Santos, or whatever his name actually is. More on that later. After the break. Kevin McCarthy may face a reckoning sooner than expected for caving to the far right. One of the first things the new MAGA Republicans in charge of the House and of Kevin McCarthy did was get rid of proxy voting. So members actually have to show up to vote. Today, Florida Congressman Greg Stubbe is out. He's out. He's out of the ICU, I should say, but he still remains hospitalized after falling from a 25 foot ladder, suffering serious but non-life threatening injuries. It is unclear when he will be able to travel back to Washington. So Stubbe cannot vote until he recovers. Meanwhile, Puck News reports that Republican Congressman Vern Buchanan exploded at McCarthy over losing the Ways and Means chairmanship, fueling anxiety that he could retire out of peak. If that happened and McCarthy were to lose George Santos, that would leave McCarthy hostage to just one member. 
Meanwhile, we've learned a lot more about Santos. A Navy veteran says Santos cheated him out of money from his dying dog's GoFundMe, which DeSantos denies. Immigration records showed Santos' mother was not at the World Trade Center on 9-11, as he claims, but rather living in Brazil at the time. Those types of inconsistencies only add more attention to calls for him to resign and allegations that he lied about his background as a candidate for office. But the latest development speaks to Santos's hypocrisy. He's denying that he ever performed in drag while living in Brazil, despite photos and video that have surfaced. Two sources told NBC News they are confident that this is Santos in drag as Kitara in Rio in 2007. Now, as we all know, there is nothing wrong with the art form of drag. It's actually really great and fabulous. But Santos has been vocal in his support for far-right legislation like Florida's Don't Say Gay Law. Joining me now is Tara Setmeyer, a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, who worked as a Republican communications director on Capitol Hill. And Sahil Kapoor, senior national political reporter for NBC News. Sahil, I do want to start with you, because here's the challenge for McCarthy. If, let's say, Vern Buchanan retires because you know, a MAGA member got that chairmanship that he wanted. And then this other gentleman, Mr. Stubbe, stays in the hospital. If he were to then push Santos out, one Republican member, one MAGA member, or even one Democrat, could call for that special provision to call for a vote of no confidence in him. And he might not win that. So because I've been assuming he will never push Santos out. Isn't that the reason why, as what what you're hearing on the Hill? Yeah, this is a real challenge for Speaker McCarthy, Joy, no doubt about it. This narrow majority, which, by the way, is identical to the narrow majority that that Speaker Pelosi oversaw last uh, over the last two years. She ended up being very effective at corralling her Democratic members in a way that McCarthy so far is not. And it's hard to figure that that isn't at least part of the calculus for Speaker McCarthy in deciding to tolerate George Santos right now, which is which is what I would say he is doing. He is tolerating George Santos. He is uh, not pushing him out. He knows that vote is going to be valuable to him. The one thing George Santos has been willing to do is vote reliably the way Kevin McCarthy wants, both on legislation, on the rules package, and to make him speaker. And if he loses him, then that's one less reliable vote that he has. But at the same time, Santos has become a huge and embarrassment for the party to the point where multiple other New York Republicans, including several first-term members that he just got elected with, have called on him to resign. They don't want to be associated with this man who has, it was now been exposed as a serial fabricator and a liar. And this could go on for weeks or months. The ethics committee is investigating. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has said he's going to wait for that to happen. These That doesn't happen in a hurry and uh, then make a decision. It seems like part of the calculation for Republican leadership is going to be, does he become so much of a liability that it's worth losing that one vote in in a four vote majority, Joy? But I mean, the thing is, Tara, how hypocritical. They don't want to be associated with Santos, but they're fine being associated with Matt Gaetz, who is alleged to have trafficked a a little girl uh, across state lines for sexual purposes. They're they're fine with being associated with Gosar's own family, says he's a racist. Uh, Jim Jordan, who was assistant uh, assistant coach, wrestling coach in Ohio, when a lot of bad things were done to some children. Um, You could go on and on and on. They're fine with being associated with Marjorie Green, the QAnon lady, the other QAnon lady from Colorado, Boebert. 138 insurrectionists, all of them are fine. So Santos has done no more lies than Trump. You know, how can they say they don't want to be associated with just him? Because he did drag? Well, that's allegedly. right. That's the, that's the thing. It, it's just really infuriating as as we watch this unfold and we listen to Kevin McCarthy and others and, and, and try to just dismiss this and say, well, well, he was elected by his voters and he's he'll be seated like everyone else. And I mean, this idea that this is just 
well, it's just another problem, like, you know, normal political issue. No, it's not. But these are the same people who voted for Donald Trump, who made excuses for Donald Trump. And we already know the exactly. litany of transgressions of Donald Trump, all in the name of political power. That was that's all this is about. So they literally revealed to the world that the Republican Party today has absolutely no principles, no foundation. They're willing to be as hypocritical as possible just for power. And Kevin McCarthy, I mean, to Sahil's point, he said that he's tolerating Santos and he's enabling him. I would go further than that because he's a master enabler. That's what he does in order to benefit yep. him. And so by doing that, you have other Republicans. Now, this is causing a problem within the caucus, especially in New York, because they know what a liability Santos is. They don't want him around. And you put up with this for two years. Let's say he survives it and he isn't arrested or prosecuted because that's about the only thing that's going to get him out of there. Um, then what happens in two years? This, this can all come caving down on them, caving in on them because they didn't stand up and get rid of this guy. This is a political nightmare for Kevin McCarthy on top of many others. So I don't know, what does it profit a man to gain the speaker's gavel just to lose the mm. power and your soul at the same time? Well, I mean, by the way, he isn't doing anything for Santos that he hasn't done for Trump. Uh, and Santos is no embar more embarrassing than Trump is. I think he's the perfect emblem for the party. I think he should stay forever. He just he, he represents the party perfectly. Perfect um, let's go to he should be their avatar, 100%. I think he fits right in. Um, Kirsten Cinema, let's talk about this, um, Sahil. I don't know what reporting you're hearing from the Hill about how much um, hand wringing there might be on the Senate side here. Kirsten Cinema uh, is switched to be an independent. Um, she's given headaches to her party the whole time. It now looks like she is actually drawing uh, a challenger. Ruben Gallego, Congressman Ruben Gallego, is expected to announce on Monday. Newsweek first reported it. How much heartburn is there in the among Democrats about this? It, in my mind, I feel like I don't know who her base is. Her base is Republican. So it seems like Ruben Gallego would have a pretty good shot. There is serious heartburn within the Democratic Party about a possible three-way race in uh, Arizona. It, it is uh, Gallego as the Democratic nominee versus a Republican nominee, and Kirsten Cinema potentially running as an independent. Now, I want to underscore: Cinema has not said whether she is running. She has not made her intentions known at all, and she has refused explicitly to answer questions. She recently told a radio station that she's not focused on campaign politics, and she said this is why people hate politics because everyone's focusing on it. That aside, we do expect Congressman Ruben Gallego to announce on Monday that he will uh, run for the U.S. Senate seat in Arizona. And uh, given the way things are shaping up, he is emerging as the favorite to win the Democratic nomination. Now, I spoke recently uh, today to uh, an advisor to Gallego who's, uh, who said they are eager for this race. If and when he does uh, jump in the race, what I would expect is for him to argue that this is not a matter of left and right, for them to frame it as, you know, who is fighting for working people in Arizona versus Wall Street. They believe that is a message that will work against cinema as well as it'll work against the Republican. They are bracing for this to be a two-way race or a three-way race. Of course, everyone recognizes that a two-way race would be easier for a Democrat to win against Kirsten Cinema because she does, according to the limited polling we've seen, pull more from the Democrats and the Republicans. For all the headaches and all the, you know, nuisances that, that she was for Democratic leadership, she does she does align more closely, uh, you know, with the center left than the than the right on uh, issues, more social issues, cultural issues, I guess, than economic issues where she does have a, a kind of a, a closer relationship with conservatives. So the uh, the big question in the race is whether cinema stays in, whether she potentially uh, uh, plays a, a kind of a spoiler role, because it's difficult yeah. at the moment, if you look at her favorable ratings and the polling, to see a path to victory as a centrist independent.
She cannot get reelected. And I'm just going to predict when people rem are reminded that she was stood in the way of voting rights and women's rights. Yeah, I think Ruma Gaia was looking pretty good. Uh, Tara Setmeyer, Sahil Kapoor, thank you both very much. Up next, Eureka O'Hara, a celebrated co-host of HBO's wonderful not, uh, Emmy and then multiple award nominated, nominated We're Here, joins me to talk about Republicans' alarming fixation on the LGBTQ community. We'll be right back after this short break. When you're a broken party like the Republicans, devoid of any serious proposals to solve serious issues affecting the American people, do you look for an easy target? Well, who do Republicans view as a major national security threat these days? Drag performers and trans kids. According to the ACLU, 124 anti-LGBTQ bills are in the works throughout the United States, looking to weaken anti-discrimination laws, limiting access to books about them, and trying to ban or censor performances like drag shows. While all of this is a distraction from Republicans' total lack of a popular policy agenda, there are very real and frightening consequences to their actions. A new morning consult poll shows that 86% of trans or non-binary youths find that these laws are targeting them personally. Three in 10 LGBTQ youth reported experiencing cyberbullying or online harassment as a result of anti-LGBTQ policies and debates. Last year, a quarter have lost touch with family because of their gender identity. Last year, an anonymous survey conducted by the Trevor Project found that 45% of LGBTQ youth respondents have seriously contemplated suicide. Just consider that for a second. My next guest is a drag and trans icon who has had her own very real journey overcoming many of these challenges. And joining me now is Eureka O'Hara, drag queen host and co-producer of one of my favorite shows on TV ever, ever. We're here on HBO, which I have binged all three seasons of. Um, and thank you so much for being here, Eureka. Thank you so much for having me, Joy. You look gorgeous. It's because I haven't watched We're Here and cried off all my makeup yet. You see, ah! I have to talk to you first and watch and cry later. Yes. So I, mm -hmm. I want to talk to you because, you know, to hear Republicans tell it, you would think that there were, you know, tens of millions of, um, of, of trans kids and adults who were just marauding the United States and creating all sorts of havoc. I was shocked when the wonderful um, producer who produced this segment found, Rachel, um, found that there are 121,882 children um, between 6 and 17 years old who were diagnosed with gender dysphoria in five years ending in 2021. So we're talking about a tiny percentage of children. And yet there's this oversized emphasis on trying to criminalize them and criminalize trans adults. And I just wonder for you how that makes you feel. Well, it's disheartening. Honestly, you know, we've moved so much in a direction of equality in our country. And now that we're starting to express ourselves outwardly, especially trans individuals, it seems that people are starting to push back even harder. And I do hate that a lot of that attention is being pushed through drag, which they think is going to um, manipulate people in thinking that it's all about the drag. But really who you're hurting are trans individuals. When you're passing these laws that's saying you can't express express yourself in an opposite gender of clothing, things like that. This is the way people live, like myself as a trans individual. I walk out of the house and I dress how I feel, which is a female. I'm a trans woman. But these laws that are being passed could criminalize me for truly existing and, and living my identity. 
Well, and you know, and the reason I asked you that question, because, right, it feels like the attack on drag performances, which, let's face it, Donald Trump and Giuliani have done drag performances for <laughs> uh, Drag has been there <laughs> since, right? They, it, their drag has been around since Shakespeare, where all the roles were played by women. Like, drag is nothing new. And I don't believe them when they say that they're afraid of drag performances. What they really hate are trans people. And I didn't know, even though I'm a super fan of yours and a super fan of your show, your full identity until this scene in uh, the final episode of this season. Take a look. The first couple days, I had such an amazing time, and but I was going uh, back to my hotel, and I was just falling into these dark spaces, mm -hmm. you know, and I was just me feeling bad about myself. Yeah. You're, you're talking about being 70 years old and transitioning, and then... And I've just been so terrified to go back to that place, but I just am not happy unless I'm presenting feminine. Okay, let me pull what I always have to have with me when I uh, watch your show, my tissue box. Yeah, me too. I'm over here. <laughs> I know, but I mean, the thing is, Eureka, it was not clear in the other episodes because the three of you, um, while being you know LGBTQ proudly, so you, you never talked in the previous episodes about being trans, and you also talked about something we don't talk a lot about, which is you transitioned and then retransitioned back, which about two percent, according to this Atlantic article um, by Leo. Valdez and Kenan McKinnon, um, who are social workers and experts in this issue, do transition back. Can you talk about why you transitioned back and why you've made the brave decision to transition again and how all of that works? Thank you. I mean, you know, I was put through a lot of discomfort um, and fear when I lived in East Tennessee as a trans woman from 18 to 23. And I was honestly afraid for my life. I went through a lot of really traumatic experiences that caused me to re-decide um, how I was going to present myself and live because I needed to have success. I needed to build my life up to, to support my mother who was sick, my family, you know, and that, and I wanted to be somebody and I saw so many trans individuals being killed or you know worse um, sexualized etc and I for a long time found contentment with being non-binary but as I've progressed as a human being and especially in this past year working with Mandy who was 70 and transitioned to 70 then working with Dempsey on we're here who was 10 years old and spoke like an adult about who her, who she was seeing the pictures with her and her family being respected as the daughter that they had you know it reminded me that I don't have to be afraid anymore because I don't want to live in that fear of not being allowed to exist. It just, it makes me self-destructive. It makes me want to harm myself. It doesn't make me hurt other people. It makes me want to eliminate my existence because I don't believe that I'm living authentically as myself. And, and that the worst struggle in the world is the fight that you have within your own mind. And I decided, you know, the rest of the world, I can fight you all better than I can fight myself because honey, if I try hard enough, I will kill myself, you know, but I can fight the world. And, and, and that's just a fight that I'm willing to do to be able to be my authentic self and to be happy and to be unafraid. I mean, um, you know, there's a beautiful woman who said it, you know, freedom is living without fear.
Yeah. So. Amen. Well, I have to say that this show and everyone should watch it. You know, it doesn't matter how you present or who you are. It's just so heartwarming. And you guys are so brave and so fun that it hurts my heart so deeply when you cry because you're always, you know, giving, making everyone else laugh and making everyone else happy. And so I am glad that you are finding your joy. And I love that wig. OK, now uh, coming up uh, <laughs> in, in one. St- <laughs> it's super cute. Um, I love your hair. Uh, so Eureka O'Hare is going to stick around with me because you guys know what's coming up next. Uh, you know who Uh-oh. Week is straight ahead, and she's gonna play it with me. Don't miss it. All right, we've made it to the end of another week. Thank goodness, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Ah, yes. Who? One the week. Back with me is the great Eureka O'Hara to play this game. Now, DJ has played before. I don't think Bob has played, so we got to get Bob to come on. But it is now your turn, my sister. So please tell me who won the week. Who won the week? I, I want to first give a shout out to We're Here. They were nominated for a GLAAD Award for Outstanding oh, Three. Yes. Yes. But number one also is really Bob the Drag. He was invited to be a part of Madonna's tour. What? Oh, hold on a second. Yes. Now you're breaking news on this show right now. You're bre- so Bob is going to be touring with Madonna. Madonna, the opening act for Madonna's new tour. I am gagged. That is my sister. She has worked so hard. It's incredible. That is amazing. Okay, now I got to figure out where that tour is going and when we can go. Kind of see Madonna, but Same. really to see Bob. <laughs> we'll okay. go together. Perfect. Maybe. Maybe we'll meet up. Okay, that sounds like a a plan. Okay, cool. Well, my Who Won the Week um, is somebody who I first met way back when I was a youngin, uh, back at WTVJ, NBC's affiliate in Miami, and he is retiring after 32 years. It is the great Kerry Sanders. Uh, He graduated from the University of South Florida. He started his career at WTVJ. He's been in the biz for 32 years, and in the course of that career has been to all 50 states, 65 countries, all seven continents, also the North Pole. He covered more than 100 named storms. He's out there getting blown around in the wind uh, from the ground. And he also reported from the ground during the Iraq war. Carrie Sanders, we love you. These are all great pictures of you. And yes. And I just love to see somebody get a chance to like sit on a beach because he's done so much. He needs a break. Maybe come to, he can come to the Madonna concert with us. He loves to go everywhere. So maybe we'll bring him with us. Oh, I would love that, honey. Sounds Mm -hmm. good. Eureka O'Hara, thank you so much. Appreciate and love you. And thank you. And that is tonight's readout. 